0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Play by Play. It's the Jamie Yarrow podcast. It's the podcast that you rely on for your daily dose of everything from business to wellness to parenting to sports, and right now, for the time being, a little bit of coronavirus. You get it all here, and we don't just talk about it. We give you the play by play. We give you all the nuggets, the details, all the how-tos, the playbook, if you will. Now, today, we're going to be talking about some of the technical terms surrounding this COVID-19 virus pandemic. And I'm going to break some of them down for you into easy to understand or layman's terms, if you will. Be sure to check out all of our other full episodes and our two-minute drills. And if you love what you hear, there's nothing more that we would like than if you subscribed and shared our podcast. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. All you got to do is search for the letters PXP and then look for the podcast Play by Play with Jamie Yarrow. If you can't find us on your favorite player, Let us know. Send us an email to ask at pxppodcast.com and we'll work to get it added so you can listen on your favorite player. Now, let's get ready for today's play-by-play. I'm your host, Jamie Yarrow, and kickoff is counting down. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be listening today. I am live from the Cloffice, that is the Closet Office, aka the PXP Studio. It's episode number 45. Today, we're going to be talking about COVID-19. And In this episode, I'm going to break down some of the terminology and help you to understand some of the confusing stuff, some of the medical side of COVID-19. I think people crave factual information. That's why everybody flocks to social media. They want to try to learn as much as they can. And unfortunately, what you find on social media is, well, it's not always the truth or it's the half-truth. And and maybe sometimes you don't understand what you're reading and you make assumptions. And Sometimes the worst thing that we can do is to Google it, right? Look, I'm forever grateful for the amount of information that is at my fingertips from the internet. But without a foundation of what you're reading there's a ton out there that is just misinformation. You have to understand enough about the subject to be able to discern good info from bad information. Now, this is not going to be a political talk. Uh, Very little opinion of mine I'm going to interject here. Mostly, I just want to break down some of these technical terms and I I want to give you a foundation that you can understand the information that you're hearing. As many of you may know, I spent... Uh, a lot of years in pre-hospital medicine. I spent about 15 years as a college adjunct instructor in an EMS program. I spent time, a lot of time, in the back of an ambulance. I worked in the ER for a bit. I worked as a respiratory therapist many, many, many years ago. I flew on a medevac helicopter as a critical care paramedic. And then I spent time educating critical care paramedics and nurses as an educator for a national helicopter medevac helicopter company. And through the course of this episode, now I may talk in terms of me being your healthcare provider as I kind of slip back into that mode a little bit as I'm talking, and other times I may reference other healthcare providers, but you'll know what I'm talking about. And I'll add this as well. My wife is a nurse and has been for 20 plus years. Uh, she worked in OB and she worked in the ER and uh, she also has a certification in legal nurse consulting and is now a certified health coach. Uh, lastly, we both represent a company called Juice Plus, which is a health and wellness company that uh, its its um, purpose is to share uh, nutrition, and, and it offers a fruit and veggie and berry product that allows you to bridge the gap between the amount of fruit and veggies and berries that we do eat versus what we should eat. It's nothing but ground up uh, fruits, veg- vegetables, and berries, and they're in a capsule, and we take that every day. And After all, the vast majority of uh, our ability to fight off disease, such as the COVID-19 that we're talking about, is based on the nutrition that we take in. So needless to say, we have a lot of medical talk that goes on inside our house. I'm going to spend the, the majority of my time today talking about the medical side of this, but I thought it'd be good to give you some basics just to start kind of a foundation on this COVID. Again, no politics and... Not too much of my opinion if I can help it. I've, I've created a outline just to keep me on track. There's a lot of terms and things. I want to make sure that I cover all of those things for you. The first thing is, where did it get its name? So the word corona actually means crown. And in 1968, some scientists came up with the term coronavirus because under a microscope, when you look at the virus, it looks like a solar corona. And that is that bright crown-like ring of gases that surrounds the sun. You can see it during a solar eclipse. And they said that it resembled what they were looking at under a microscope. So they called it the coronavirus. Now the COVID-19, which is called the coronavirus, that's what we know it by. We've seen those two terms kind of be interchanged. It's actually caused by one of the types of coronavirus called the SARS-CoV-2. So it's called a novel virus. You've heard that word novel. And that just means that it hasn't been seen before. So it's new. So it's called a novel virus. And the word COVID, if you break that down, it actually comes from, it's all a bunch of words all scrunched together. So COVID stands for Corona Virus Disease. So the CO is part of Corona. The VI is part of virus. And the D is for disease. And then the 19 comes from it being discovered in 2019. So COVID-19 is... The short name for coronavirus disease 2019. Now, we, when we've, you know, we heard that not too long ago that they, the World Health Organization, they classified this as a pandemic. Let's, so let's break down what that word means. Way before pandemic, something becomes a pandemic. It starts off as an outbreak. And that's just a sudden rise of disease in a particular area. So there could be an outbreak of a particular disease in, you know, in Wuhan. That's where it started. And there was initially just an outbreak of the disease. And then beyond that, uh, it became an epidemic. And so that is when it spreads beyond the initial part. Now, Wuhan is very tight, uh, concentrated area. So when it got beyond Wuhan, then it became an epidemic. And then when it gets to be worldwide, uh, that's when it becomes a pandemic. It's very widespread. It doesn't have to be worldwide, but it just means that it's very, very widespread. Uh, and so pandemic, does not it doesn't have anything to do with whether it's treatable or whether it's, you know, the disease is deadly or any of that kind of stuff. It just means uh, how much the disease has spread. So don't let the word pandemic necessarily scare you. It's just a word that describes the amount of spread that disease has. disease has had. Uh, When we move on and we start talking about the medical side of COVID-19, we talk about the signs and the symptoms. And so just those two words alone, signs and symptoms, they are used a lot interchangeably, right? Someone might say, well, what's the signs of the disease or what's the symptoms of the disease? And they're used interchangeably, but technically there is a difference. So from a medical terminology perspective, a sign is something that a medical provider or a healthcare provider can see. So, for example, a sign would be a runny nose or a cough or using your accessory muscles when you breathe. You know, when you see someone breathing really hard, you can see their chest rise and fall really fast. They're using their accessory muscles, their ribs are retracting, and, or they might be using their abdominal muscles to breathe, their stomach muscles. Uh, they may have a temperature. And so, if we can see it or we can test for it as a medical provider, then that's a sign. Now, a symptom, that's something that the patient feels. So, for instance, a symptom might be that they have body aches or they have a headache or it's hard for them to breathe. It's They're describing something to you. Or pain is a symptom. We can't see pain. They can feel pain and they can describe it, but we can't see it. Nausea is a symptom. Now, vomiting would be a sign, right, because you can... You can physically see vomiting, but the nausea that caused the vomiting, that would be a symptom, right? So you see how the differences are. They're interchangeable, and, and for the course of this discussion, for the rest of the day here, we're probably going to just use them interchangeably, but I did want you to know that there was a difference between a sign and a symptom, uh, and and technically, uh, there one is something that the patient tells you or they feel, and the other one is something you can see or you can test for When it comes to symptoms or what the patient feels, we use the terms symptomatic versus asymptomatic. And we'll talk about this some more because this is important as we get into how the disease is uh, contagious or how it's spread a little later on in the discussion. But the word symptomatic means that, that the patient is exhibiting signs or symptoms. So they're actually having something go wrong from the disease, whether it's shortness of breath or a cough or fever. They're having symptoms versus the word asymptomatic, which means without symptoms. So early in the disease, we're going to talk about this a lot more later, early in the disease, patients are often asymptomatic. So they don't have any symptoms yet. So they may actually have the virus in their body and the virus may be growing and replicating in their body but right now they're asymptomatic, meaning without symptoms. So a patient can be symptomatic or asymptomatic, and again, asymptomatic means without symptoms. So what are some of the signs and symptoms that we're seeing with uh, with the COVID nineteen? Obviously, the the most common ones, the screening signs and symptoms that they're that they're using are cough, fever, shortness of breath. So those are kind of the the hallmark symptoms that people are complaining of that the that the healthcare providers are using to screen on whether they test or not. Does someone have a fever and cough and shortness of breath? There's been a few new symptoms that have been added in the last few days, or at least they're being talked about. And we'll probably see more of this coming out as the days go on. Um, but the American Academy of Otolaryngology, uh, these are the ear, nose, and throat people. They said that they're, they're finding people that have a loss or an altered sense of smell or taste in people that are testing positive for COVID-19. So this may be something that we see coming down the pipe. Um, This organization, they've actually requested that this sign and symptom be added to the screening test for the virus. So we'll see what happens with that. But it's also being seen in some patients that abdominal pain and vomiting and diarrhea could be an early sign of the virus. So according to a new study that was published by the American Journal of Gastroenterology, the GI folks In a small study, it was just real small, 204 patients, but almost 50% of the patients, 49% of the COVID patients had GI symptoms or gastrointestinal symptoms, gut symptoms. Now, these symptoms were rarely seen without respiratory issues. So they went in combination with each other. In fact, only seven of the 204 patients presented with just GI symptoms and tested positive for covid Uh, Other than that, all the patients that had GI symptoms, uh, which included abdominal pain or vomiting or diarrhea, they all also had respiratory symptoms. Uh, And these were all early signs that these patients presented with. Uh, When it comes to these signs or symptoms like when should you be concerned? So if you have trouble breathing, if you have chest pain or you have chest pressure, uh, if you have confusion, or a family member is confused, or they're anxious, uh, maybe you have some trouble getting them to arouse or getting them to wake up. If there's any changes in their facial color, or their lips, or their extremities, you know their lips get blue, or their fingertips get blue. Um, they have they get anxious, or they get real ang- anxiety when they're trying to breathe. So you can tell that they're they're having enough distress in their breathing that it's making them anxious these are all times when you certainly need to be seeking medical care. Um, So whether you seek medical care short of those things, now that's up to you. Uh, I'm not, you know, again, I'm not here to tell you what to do, what not to do. Uh, I just want to break down some of the facts for you. For me and my family, uh, I'll just tell you what the way that we're going to handle it. Uh, Unless we need medical care, we're not going to seek medical care. So unless we have shortness of breath or chest pain or we have, um, you know, difficulty breathing to the point where we need medical care to support that, then we're not going to seek medical care. We're going to stay home, isolate. Uh, We're going to do those, you know, treat the symptoms from home best we can and try not to get out and get others infected or get, uh, you know, sicker if we get around people. So that's how we're going to handle it. Now you handle it, whatever is the best way that you think you need to, uh, whether you seek medical attention short of those symptoms that I just mentioned, that's entirely up to you. Um, now let's talk about the incubation period so what does that even mean incubation period you've you've heard that term probably floating around the incubation period is the time from when you're exposed to the virus to when you start experiencing signs and symptoms so it's during this time that the virus is replicating inside your body so the virus is growing you're the host and the virus has taken up shop in your in your body so it's found a new home and in, it's during this time, the incubation period, where the virus continues to grow. Initially, they were saying that's about five to seven days. And now, you know, they're saying maybe it's about five, they were saying five to 10 days. And now I think, you know, they've kind of settled on this wide range of numbers from two to 14 days. So it's pretty, it's a pretty wide range. Um, but we're going to talk about what, how this, you know, how that two to 14 days may be very important to keep in the back of your mind here in a little bit. Let's talk about the phrase viral shedding or shedding. You may or may not have heard this. If you've been reading any articles about COVID, you probably have run across that term shedding. Shedding is the process that a virus goes through after making it, you know, making its home inside your body. So, you you know, when it sets up shop inside you and it starts to grow, there's a lot of technical details behind it. But generally speaking, shedding means that the virus can be transmitted to others. So with the case of of this virus, with COVID-19, this is where the the disease gets particularly scary. So unlike the previous SARS disease, the one that we had years ago, it shed most of its virus after the symptoms appeared. Once the virus got deep down inside the lungs, that's when a lot of the virus shedding took place. And remember, shedding is when the virus can be transmitted to others. Um, COVID-19 appears to be doing the opposite. So it has its highest rate of shedding prior to and at the earliest parts of the illness. So why should this make our eyebrows perk up? Well, frankly, I mean, you could be shedding or transmitting the virus for days or even more than a week before you yourself start to exhibit signs and symptoms. So let me let me say that again. You can be transmitting the virus or shedding the virus for days or even longer than a week before your own symptoms start to show up. There was a study done by German researchers about this and they found that the COVID-19 was shedding a thousand times more virus in its peak time than SARS was in its peak time. So this COVID-19 is a thousand times more contagious, if you will, than SARS was in its peak and that's what makes this disease so communicable. And communicable means that it can be spread or transmitted. So you've heard that word kicked around, communicable. It just means it can be spread or transmitted. For instance, uh, let me give an example. COVID-19 is is considered a communicable disease. And uh, let's see, cancer is not communicable. Um, so cancer is not something you can catch from somebody else. Um, but COVID-19 is, so it makes it a communicable disease. When we talk about something being communicable, the first thing people want to know is, well, how long are we contagious? And now this is where it gets a little tricky, and that's a great question. And it's one that's being heavily researched right now, as you can imagine. Uh, It seems, based on the available studies so far, that most patients are only shedding a small amount of virus after five days from when the symptoms subside. And about eight to ten days after, they were shedding no virus. So, what does that really mean? Uh, well, they figured this out by they were taking samples of sputum, which is that what you cough up from your lungs. Sputum is that that phlegm that you cough up. They were taking sputum samples and nasal swabs and throat swabs, and they were growing, uh, trying to grow the virus in the lab. And after about five days, there was only a little bit of virus that they could grow. And after eight to 10 days, they weren't able to grow any more virus. Uh, And so what that basically means is right now, for the time being, the studies that they have available, now this may change because this is a a fairly new study that they're embarking on and a lot of different places, I'm sure, are trying to figure this out. But after about five days after your symptoms subside, you should be on the tail end of being contagious. And after about eight to 10 days, you shouldn't be contagious at all anymore. Uh, And that is different from the front end, right? So what we just talked about was that you're highly contagious on the front end of the virus before you're even exhibiting symptoms. And that's the scary part about this virus is that we can all be walking around spreading the virus and we don't even know it because we're not even exhibiting symptoms yet. So the virus can be inside us. It can be growing and replicating and we can be shedding virus and we don't even know it. Uh, now, the more severe cases, those statistics, that 5 days and 8 to 10 days, those were on the mild illnesses. Now, the more severe cases, they appear to be transmitting a little bit longer. Uh, this is going to be hugely beneficial information when they get some more concrete data. The great thing about it is that it appears that our antibodies uh, that, that are, our bodies are making to this virus, we're making our bodies are making those antibodies in about 6 to 12 days we're starting to develop them and so that's probably what's causing that short window of contagiousness beyond the infectious state or beyond the signs and symptoms state so you know the we're really we're really contagious on the front end we start to exhibit signs signs and symptoms we we get over the disease and then you know, five to eight to 10 days later, we're not contagious anymore because our body has really built up those antibodies pretty quickly. And that's a, a, that is a encouraging thing about what they're seeing is that our bodies are building up antibodies very quickly. Now antibodies are those things that your body, those are the particular cells in your body that your body uses to fight off infection. That's called an antibody. Until you're exposed to something, you don't have any antibodies. So when you're born, you get some antibodies from your mother, uh, and then you start to develop your own antibodies as you are, and it's far more technical than this, but this is a general overview. As you grow and you start to be exposed to different things, and as you get vaccines, you start to develop your own antibodies to things so that you can fight off diseases on your own. Because this is a novel uh, virus or a novel disease, we don't have any antibodies for this yet. And so that's why no one has the ability to fight this off until you, until you grow or until you develop your own antibodies inside your body. So the terms morbidity and mortality, um, those two things are often used interchangeably, but they do mean something different. So when you're looking at statistics or you're looking at um, uh, reports or articles or something like that, it's important to know the difference between the two because they are strikingly different morbidity is the term that's used to describe how many people have the disease. And then mortality is the term used to describe how many people have died from the disease. And it's all relative to the population. So morbidity means that they have had the disease and mortality means that they have died from the disease. And you've seen this number, it's expressed in a percentage and you've seen anywhere, you know, the numbers anywhere from You know, less than 1% to 4 or 5 or 6% in some other countries. Um, as of a few days ago, here are the current mortality rates that are published by the CDC, and these are age banded. So let me read this to you. The group that's over 85 years old, this is the mortality rate now. This is the rate, uh, of people that have died, um, from the disease. So this is mortality rate. Over 85 years old, the mortality rate is 10 to 27. That's what they're expecting. 10 to 27% of people over age 85 will die if they get the disease. Age 65 to 84, it's a 3 to 11% mortality rate. Ages 55 to 64, a 1 to 3% and then under 54, so 20 to 54, it's less than 1% mortality rate. Just as a reference, the flu mortality rate is around 0.1%. And so if you compare just let's just compare some of those numbers just because 0.1% and we start getting to whole numbers and, and decimal points. And let me just give you kind of an example so you can understand what those numbers mean. Uh, so when we compare the age 55 to 64 group, which the mortality of COVID is 1 to 3%. So that means that it's 10 to 30 times deadlier than the flu. Okay. Uh, on the age, over age 85 group, the mortality is 10 to 27% for COVID. And that means that it's a hundred to 270 times deadlier, just that range in there. So I just want to point that out that it's not the same as the flu. And I'm still seeing social media posts um, about, you know, this is no big deal. Everybody's overreacting. It's just the flu, blah, blah, blah. And I'm not, there's no reason to panic. Look, I'm not doomsday in here. Uh, like I said, I just want to lay out the facts, but there is a very good reason to take it seriously. I mean, the the uh, the contagious factor, you know, is significantly greater than the flu or greater than the SARS. We looked at, it's a thousand times more contagious than the SARS as far as viral shedding goes anyway. And the mortality rate is significantly higher with this disease, with COVID-19, than it is with the flu. So again, not trying to doomsday I'm not look I'm I'm upbeat uh, I'm feeling good and I'm not trying to be no, no reason to panic but there is a very good reason to take it serious and this is where all this social distancing and quarantining and all this is coming into play and, and you know you've heard these terms social distancing and quarantine you've heard them used ad nauseum lately right but there really is a good purpose behind it Again, there's probably about 10% of the people, and I don't just throw on a number, who knows what the percentage is, but on social media that want to be tough and want to ignore social distancing and all this kind of stuff. But the problem is what we talked about already, viral shedding and the incidence of viral shedding before signs and symptoms even appear. And you may be infected and you might even test positive and have little or no symptoms at all. Think about that. You're walking around out there you're positive for COVID-19 and you've got no symptoms. Let me give you a scenario. So you're working from home because of the quarantine or because your company has decided you need to work remotely or you got laid off or you're unemployed or whatever the case may be. You're working from home and you decide you need to knock out some of those things on your to-do list. So you jump in the car, you head down to Lowe's or Home Depot and you pick out your supplies and you're wandering through the store and you're checking stuff out and you pick out all your supplies and you head to the checkout and little do you know that you're carrying that virus. Let's say that you were exposed to it, you know, five, seven days ago and you don't even know it. You haven't started experiencing any signs or symptoms yet. Or maybe you just have a little something, you know, you got a little cough. Uh, You're just, and, and you're, you're explaining it away as seasonal allergies. And I, there's probably a bunch of you right now that said, well, I got seasonal allergies and you might. But let's just let's just work through this scenario. So you get to the checkout counter and you got your supplies there, and you get ready. You your, uh, you run all that stuff through the checkout, and you swipe that debit card and you enter your PIN number. So you punch in the numbers on that keypad. You just left, potentially did. You just left COVID virus on the keypad of the debit card machine. So if you were to cough in your hand or wipe your face or uh, you you know anything any way that you got. That virus in touch with your hand, which is super easy because we're going to talk about the ways that it can be transmitted here in a minute. But you just touch that keypad to punch your PIN number in for your debit card, and you just left COVID on the keypad of the debit, debit card machine. So you take your stuff and you go on to the car and you go to the house. The person behind you checks out and they do the same thing, only instead of them leaving virus on the keypad of the debit card machine, they just picked up the virus that you just left. And now they're walking out of the store and they scratch their face or they wipe their eye and you just infected them. So viral shedding from you just transmitted to them. And unfortunately for them, they're in that age group of 55 to 64 that has a 30% greater chance of mortality than they do with the flu. And then to top that off, they go home and they give it to their spouse who suffers from diabetes and COPD, and they had a heart attack, and so they had a heart stint, and so they're one of these immunocompromised. We'll talk about that word in a minute. They're one of these people who who doesn't have a great immune system, and their spouse gets sick, and that spouse has to be admitted to the hospital, and they're put in ICU, and they're placed on a ventilator. And now that spouse is fighting for their life because of the virus that you left on the keypad. And that that virus that you left on the keypad... It's going to be there all day long unless that business wipes down the machine. So how many more people will your COVID shedding on that machine, how many more people will that infect? I don't know. And look, that's just a scenario. I just totally made that up. But it's very plausible. And that's the whole purpose of social distancing. That is the scenario that social distancing is meant to prevent. Now look, I told you I wasn't going to get political and I'm not here to grandstand but I do want to give you some down-to-earth understanding of the facts. So let's pick up with that patient that had to go to the hospital and be admitted. I want to start talking to you about some medical stuff. We all know what an ICU is, right? It's an intensive care unit. This is where the most critical patients get admitted. In small hospitals, there might not even be an ICU, or there may only be a few beds. And in large hospitals, they oftentimes have specialized ICUs like cardiac ICU or surgical ICUs or neuro ICUs, medical ICUs. In uh, these ICUs, they, they're filled with specially trained nurses that care for the patients. Now, as I talk about the, the level of training that some nurses have versus others, I'm in no way criticizing the nurses that don't work in ICU. Don't get me wrong. My wife is a nurse and she didn't work in ICU. And so I'm not criticizing nurses that don't work in ICU. An ICU nurse might very well struggle in an ER environment, just as an ER nurse might struggle in an ICU environment. And they're both taking care of critical patients, but the way that they take care of them is just different. And I only share this with you because I think it's important to understand that the level of skill that this nursing staff must have to work in ICU, it's a limited supply. Uh, There's only so many nurses that are trained to be ICU nurses that can care for this level of critical patients. Uh, In addition to nurses, there's obviously a number of other healthcare providers, all the doctors and technicians and respiratory therapists and all these people that help to work to take care of the patients in the ICUs, Uh, but there's a limited number of this staff and there's a limited number of these types of rooms in hospitals because there's so much specialized monitoring and training and equipment and all that kind of stuff that's needed. You've heard a lot about the potential uh, for there being a shortage of ICU beds and PPEs and ventilators. And I saw in New York on on, on a news report that they were setting up makeshift morgues. Um, There's just all of these things that are, are, are in the news and you're hearing about a shortage of all these things. So what does PPE stand for? PPE, you've heard about that. That's personal protective equipment. And the level of PPE varies. It's based on what is needed for that particular patient. So this could be something as simple as gloves and a mask, or it could be all the way up to face shields and gowns and respirators. So it all depends on what's needed. And that level of PPP is what's used by the healthcare provider. So what you're currently hearing about is a shortage of these PPEs, and I think mostly masks is what we're talking about. Because COVID can attach to the droplets in the air that we breathe out, and then subsequently it's breathed back in, COVID makes its home inside our lungs. And, and so when we breathe out, COVID can be attached to those little micro droplets of air that we breathe out. And subsequently, then we breathe it back in. A mask is a vital PPE for healthcare providers. So when someone coughs, or even when they just breathe, they can spread the virus to anyone that's in close enough proximity to breathe the same air that they just exhaled. Or they're walking through a store and you breathe out and someone walks behind you and they breathe in the same air that you breathed out. There was a study that came out early on that said that the viruses, that this virus could, could be in the air for as long as three hours. And so these little microparticles that you can't even see, that's where the virus can adhere to. And as I said, it's not just when you cough that you spread the virus. Just breathing out air can release the micro droplets that can then be inhaled by somebody else. And this is one of the main reasons for the six-foot recommendation. That and also, if we stay six feet away from each other, we're likely not to touch each other. And so, um, shaking hands and, you know, all these things, I mean, the fist bump or the elbow or whatever, it's best just not to touch at all because of the level of viral shedding that happens before signs and symptoms start to be present. So that's PPE. We heard about shortages or potential shortages of ventilators. The New York governor told uh, the president that uh, he needed 30,000 ventilators for a worst case scenario. So what exactly is a ventilator? Well, in the most basic general overview terms, it's a breathing machine. Now, it's far more technical than that, but a ventilator is designed to take the place of someone's own breathing effort. So that's one of the things that it does. When someone is placed on a ventilator or a vent, you'll hear me say vent or you'll hear that in the news. Uh, That's a short, just a short term for the word ventilator. Vent could be called. Uh, They'll have a breathing tube or an endotracheal tube that's inserted through their mouth, occasionally they'll put one through the nose, but most often it's through their mouth, and that tube travels down the back of their throat and it goes into their trachea or their windpipe. You know, when you drink something or you eat something and you cough and you say, well, that went down the wrong pipe. Well, that's what we're talking about is it's going in the trachea or it's aggravated the the opening to the trachea where the epiglottis is. So when something goes down the wrong pipe, that's the trachea. Well, in this case, they're inserting a tube into the trachea At the end of the tube, right before the very end of the tube that's down into the trachea, there's a real small balloon that's inflated. And that's to seal off the trachea so that no liquids can get into the lungs. Normally, your epiglottis, which is a real small flap of skin, it covers the opening of the trachea. Uh, When there's a tube in place, though, that protection from the epiglottis is gone. And so there's a little balloon that's inflated, and that's what keeps the, the lungs protected from any sort of secretions or fluid or vomit or anything like that that might go back down into the into the trachea and cause what's called aspiration when things go in the lungs that aren't supposed to be there. Now, here's the part that many don't understand about being on event. To be intubated and, and to be placed on a vent, you're going to be sedated with medicine. And that means that you're made super sleepy, so you can't feel or you can't remember anything that's happening, and you, you basically are kind of knocked out. Um, if you've ever had a colonoscopy or some other similar procedure like that uh, where you were awake but you didn't necessarily remember anything, that's because you were sedated. You were given a sedative. You were given medication that put you to sleep uh, but didn't put you all the way to sleep. And sometimes uh, if the sedation's not enough, there's a need to use a specific medication to paralyze you so that you can't move. The vent can be really uncomfortable for patients, and, and as a result... Um, they'll often fight against the tube. We call it fighting against it, and they'll um, their their body will you know move, and they'll try to bite down on the tube, and they'll retch, and uh, you know you still have your gag reflex and the all that that is is incredibly uncomfortable uh, for the patient. Imagine having something stuck down your throat and it's staying there. You know you got your gag reflex, you got the feeling of not being able to breathe. Um, you've got this machine that's trying to breathe for you. So it's necessary to sedate or even paralyze the patient when you're placing them on a ventilator. Now, this is all done by medication, and all that can be reversed by stopping to give the medication. So when I use the word paralyze, I don't mean that they can't walk or like that, that'll never reverse itself. It's just a medication that's used to try to keep them from not moving. Uh, one of the main purposes of the vent is to let the person's respiratory system or their breathing system, their lungs and all the muscles and all that that you use to breathe, it's to let all that rest while the patient recovers. And then as well, the vents have special settings that can help push fluid out of the lungs. If your lungs start to flu- fill up with fluid, um, sometimes you know people with these diseases uh, will often develop pneumonia and they get fluid in their lungs. And so a ventilator or a vent can help to push that fluid out of the lungs. It helps to keep the tiny little air sacs that are deep inside the lungs opened. Now, these little air sacs, they're called alveoli. And if you were to be able to look at them microscopically, they're super, they're super small. You'd have to look at them under a microscope. But as you're, you know, if, if you can imagine traveling down as air goes down into the lungs and it goes through your trachea and it goes down through your bronchi and it goes in through your bronchioli and it gets all the way down to these tiny little branches of alveoli. They're called They're little air sacs. They look like bunches of grapes. There's millions of them. And they're the smallest little structures of the lung. And if our lungs fill up with fluid or they're not expanding properly, these tiny little air sacs can collapse and then they can't allow oxygen and carbon dioxide to exchange. And the ventilator can help reverse this by keeping a little bit of pressure in the lungs between breaths and that allows for the tiny sacs to recover. And then additionally, some medicines can be given through the breathing tubes and those go right to the lungs where they're needed most. Now, these vents have to be set up and monitored by highly trained healthcare providers, like I mentioned earlier, ICU or critical care nurses or respiratory therapists. Your normal nurse that has never worked in an ICU or had exposure to a ventilator wouldn't be able to operate one. And again, that's not a cut against a nurse that doesn't know how to operate one. It's just a matter of experience. They just haven't been exposed to them before. And because of this, it limits the number of people that can operate a ventilator. Now, while it's always a big decision to place someone on a vent, it's often the very thing that is needed to save their life. While the benefits outweigh the risks in those cases, there is still a risk to be placed on a vent. There's complications with any medical procedure, and this is no different. The longer that a person is on a vent, the longer it takes for them to come off the vent. Now, the goal is for the patient to recover enough where they can breathe effectively on their own. And at that point... The vent or the breathing machine can be removed and the breathing tube can be taken out. So all the talk about ventilators and shortages and ICU beds and all this, I just wanted you to have some background in that it's not just like you're placing someone on oxygen. It's a significant medical procedure to put somebody on a ventilator, to intubate them, put a breathing tube into their lungs and to put them on a ventilator is a big deal. There was some information that came out a few days ago from the University of Alabama in Birmingham. Uh, if you're not local to Alabama, that's our big university hospital in the state. It's the largest medical center in the state, and it's the most advanced, and it's the trauma center, and you know the teaching hospital, and children's hospital is there next to the university hospital or UAB, as it's called. And at that time, there were 60 patients that were uh, being treated for... COVID-19, and the article said that half of those were on a ventilator for their treatment. In another interesting statistics regarding ventilators, we early on thought that this disease was not going to be something that the younger crowd needed to worry about, but statistically, half of the patients who are placed on a ventilator were between the ages of 20 and 65. So, there still is a significant number of young people that are requiring mechanical ventilation in order to recover from the disease. Another thing that people are asking about is antibiotics. Now, as you may know, antibiotics don't treat viruses. There are antiviral medications that can be used for some viruses. As of the time that I'm recording this, there's none that have been approved for the treatment of COVID yet. But even still, what the antiviral medications do is lessen the signs and symptoms. So they decrease the, uh, the severity of the disease. And they allow the body to build up the antibodies to fight the virus itself. Now, there are some doctors that are trying off-label usage of some medications to see if it can have any effect. And if you hear that term off-label, it means that it's being used for something other than what the FDA has approved it for. And sometimes uh, they'll they'll do that. They'll use drugs off-label if they have been found to be effective for a certain disease or condition. On the other end of the spectrum from antibiotics or antivirals are the vaccines. And of course, vaccines is a huge topic of discussion right now. Uh, and at this time, I know they're working on some vaccines for the COVID virus, but it's going to be months or potentially you know, even a year or longer before a vaccine is released. And the way that a vaccine works is when you receive the vaccine, usually by an injection, your body then creates the antibodies that it needs to fight the disease without you actually getting the disease first. As it stands right now, if you were to contract COVID-19, your body would develop the antibodies to fight off the disease. But of course, you're going to run the normal, you know, course of the disease in order to get to that point. With a vaccine, the goal is that you build up the antibodies before you get the disease, and then that either keeps you from getting the disease or it allows you to fight it off much more effectively, and that's kind of the goal. Many of you get the flu vaccine each year, and this would be similar to that. Now, um, personally, I don't get the flu vaccine, but I'm also not immunocompromised either. Uh, And that word immunocompromised, you've heard that a lot in the news, That means that a person has a condition or a disease that causes them to have a decreased immune system or some condition that makes it harder for them to fight the disease. You often see this in elderly patients or cardiac patients or respiratory disease patients or cancer. Um, Any type of patient that has uh, a difficulty fighting off a disease would fall into that category of immunocompromised. Now, my personal opinion is I don't think that the vaccine is needed unless you fall into the immunocompromised category, at least for what we're talking about right now. And then you got to compare the risk versus reward of getting the vaccine. Now, we've gone about 45 minutes or so, 44 minutes, and I think I'm going to wrap this up. The whole purpose for today's podcast was to give you a breakdown of some of the more technical terms and uh, things like that that are floating around there's no doubt that we all want what's best for our families and our communities but sometimes i think we make decisions based off of misunderstanding or uh, misinformation and perhaps today you learned a little something that you didn't know that will better equip you to make the choices to best protect you and your family and that was my goal i get a lot of questions about what are some good resources who can i trust for information Uh, and i would point you to a couple places. I'll put these links into the show notes, but John Hopkins University has a good website. It's got good information. You can always look to the CDC. They're going to put out information. Your local public health department is going to put out information. I know a lot of people say, well, I don't trust any of those things. And I guess my response to that would be, well, you can either trust, you know, memes on social media, or you can trust Valid science, and whether you think that you know these organizations are releasing all the information or they're steering you down the wrong path, I mean, you know, that's something you're going to have to just wade through on your own. But I would far rather trust science versus the internet uh, or social media any day. And uh, I'll be more than happy if there's any questions you have about the data that I provided today, be more than happy to tell you where I got that data, if it was a source or whether it was just from something that I already knew. uh, I'll be more than happy to share that with you. Or if you have additional questions, I'll be happy to answer those. uh, And I'll back that up with science. I'm not going to give you my opinion and and let it be that. I'll back it up with science if it's something that I'm going to share with you. Well, I guess that's all the time we have for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Play by Play. Be sure to check out all of our other episodes and our two-minute drills You can find all of those on your favorite podcast player by searching the letters PXP and clicking on play-by-play with Jamie Yarrow podcast. Thanks for listening today, and most of all, I hope that something that was said today helps you to become a better version of yourself. My name is Jamie Yarrow, and I hope you have a wonderful day.